0: Thank you all for being here today, <clears throat> uh, Memorial Day weekend. I know a lot of people are traveling, but thank you guys for being here. Uh, Acts chapter 3, thanks Al for reading so much of that. Thanks Jay for uh, choosing the songs you did. He texted me last night and said, what do you think? And I said, to be honest, I haven't looked as much uh, in detail at the songs, but I trust you. And uh, uh, we do. He's always asking, what are you preaching? Because he's trying to line up what we sing and what we preach and have the same theme. And I, I hope you see the theme uh, of the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. And we'll see in Acts chapter 3, and we're going to go almost through Acts chapter 4 <clears throat> and see three really big themes from the early church. And I don't know about you, but when I read Acts, it's fascinating that this is kind of our story, right? We're a church. It's a for church. We're a church. This is the very beginning of the church. What did it look like when they were starting? What were they doing? What, what kinds of things were they doing? Not, not always so we can try to replicate it, but h- how can we learn from the things God was leading them to do? How did they grow? And how does that teach us about how we ought to grow? And, and what kind of opposition did they face? And what does that teach us about the opposition we're gonna face? And what were they faithful to? And what does that teach us about what we ought to be faithful to? And, and as I was reading Acts 3 and 4, this came to mind, that we cannot underestimate How tempted we are, and how easy it is to build our life in our own power. We can't underestimate how tempted we are, and how easy it is to build our life or to build this church in our own power. It's so tempting. And that's the message that's constantly getting put out to us, right? You have the strength, you have the ability, you are something special, you've got the power. Man, make of your life whatever you want, build it, work harder, move up the ladder make these decisions and man it's graduation season right graduating college and so many college graduates are about to get hit with a very interesting next three to five years as they realize all the jobs are not going to come knocking on their door and and all the things they studied in their degree are not about to just fall into their lap but it's a very difficult road ahead but it's so tempting and at times it's so easy to try to build our life for ourselves. Right? Because at the end of the day, you look in the mirror and you have someone to blame if it doesn't go the way you wanted it to go. And at the end of the day, you can look in the mirror and realize, you're the one to fix this. So let's do it. Let's work harder tomorrow. You know what? Let, I need a fresh start. I need to move across the, I need to move to a new city. Let's build this thing. I can be someone new. But what we're going to see in Acts three and four is that they were totally unwilling to build the church on anything other than the name of Jesus. They were completely unwilling to do it because they realized that maybe they could, maybe they could build a bigger church, or maybe they could build the church faster if they built it on something other than the name of Jesus. But I think at the end of the day, they realized that if they did that and they looked back, it wouldn't have been a church at all. There would have been no life-changing power in it. There would have been nothing of eternal value in what they built And they were dedicated to building it on the name of Jesus. So let's look in this text and let's try to see three big things from God's word. First, let's pray. Father, would you open up our eyes to see you in your word today? Would you send us the same Holy Spirit that inspired this word into our hearts to illuminate that word to us so that we can see all the beauties of it? God, we pray that it would change our life today. Thank you, for revealing yourself to us so that we can know you. Holy Spirit, would you move in power in our hearts today, in Jesus' name, amen. So the first word that I want us to look at is the word power, is the word power. And I think you see this word power in a couple places in this passage, but let's rehash what's going on. Pastor Al read it, and that was a lot of scripture to read But scripture is God's word, so it's important, so we're going to take the time to do that. But the first word is power. What's happening in Acts chapter 3? Well, it's interesting because it's following right on the heels of Acts chapter 2. We've kind of spread it out. But in Acts chapter 2, there's Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes. Peter stands up, gives an explanation. Hey, here's what's going on. Jesus died, but he was resurrected. And salvation's here. You can be saved. Thousands of people come to know Jesus, We preached that a couple weeks ago, Pastor Al did. Then last week, we talked about the very end of Acts chapter 2, what did their life together look like, and then you have the beginning of Acts chapter 3. What's interesting is, it doesn't necessarily say what day all this is on, so you can estimate, is it the same day as Acts chapter, is it a different day than Acts chapter 2, is it the same week, a different week, either way, here's what we do know. Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, it says the ninth hour. My Bible has a little note that lets you know, hey, for western time it's about three o'clock in the afternoon they're going to pray there's a man who's been laying from birth right later on in the passage we find out he's 40 years old at least 40 years old and they used to carry him and lay him at this one gate where you'd enter the temple and he would ask for alms he'd ask for basically be a beggar and he's laying there every day and the first thing that came to my mind is how easy would it have been for Peter and John to walk right by that man as they probably have so many times before it would have been so easy right? You kind of get numb to needs when you see him so often. But today he's begging for alms and they're walking in the temple and Peter looks at him. It's interesting because the text says Peter directed his gaze at him. That's chapter three, verse four. So he literally looks at him right in the eye. It's kind of this indication like, hey, we're about to have a conversation. He looks at this guy and he tells him, look back at us. And Peter kind of has a, I like to call him a little Jesus juke. Because he goes, I know you're looking for money. I don't have money, but I've got Jesus, right? Sometimes you kind of hear that in a snarky way today. A little Jesus juke, right? It's like, I know this is your real need, and I don't have that. So it's like when you go to a restaurant, and, and please never do this. And if you do this, never tell them you're from our church. But if you leave one of those million-dollar bill tracks as instead of a tip, that's great. But at the end of the day, if they turn that in for rent check to their landlord, landlord's going to go, okay, so where's rent, right? So so leave a real tip. Sometimes there's this Jesus juke moment, but I don't think that's what Peter's doing here because Peter actually sees through his need for money and sees a greater need. This man's whole life has been confined to the fact that he can't walk. So he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Obviously, what an amazing miracle. And and that's what Luke shows us in verses 8, 9, and 10. Look at these words. He's leaping. He began to walk. Uh, He's leaping and praising God. uses that word again everyone's filled with wonder and amazement. He's clinging to Peter and John. Everyone's utterly astounded. They're running together to the portico that's called Solomon's. So there's this urgent, intense language of like, this miracle really just happened right here in the temple just another afternoon. All of a sudden, this man, we've all seen him for our whole lives, and now he's just walking, running around. What just happened? And then Peter addresses again. So we have two sermons, and they're both Peter's so far. You kind of get the sense Peter's stepping up and leading this thing. And he gives this sermon. He says, look, you're looking at us and you're staring at us and you're wondering as if it's, it's us, as if it was my power or my piety, which, which means like holiness or righteousness. So Peter stops and says, okay, so this man's healed and you're looking at us thinking, what'd you do? What, what kind of magic are you wielding to heal this man we've all seen be lame from birth? And notice what Peter does with me. And it took me all week and I'm still wrestling with this. Peter gives this answer. Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Let's put some pieces together. How in the world was this man healed? Peter's response: the resurrection of Jesus. My question: two thousand years later, what do they have to do with each other? What does Jesus' resurrection have to do with this man being healed? If he would have kept going and say, "Because Jesus resurrected," then and then gave more explanation, I would be a little more intellectually satisfied. But what is Peter trying to get at with the fact that he doesn't give any more explanation? He actually goes back and retells events that these people probably knew, right? Hey, Pilate was ready to release him, but you asked for Barabbas. Pilate was ready to exonerate Jesus because he was innocent, he didn't do anything. But you said you wanted him crucified. So he was, you had him killed. He retells the events of just a couple months before of Jesus' death. But he adds this, you denied him, you rejected him, you had him killed, but God glorified him and raised him up. What a painful comparison. He's essentially saying the one you denied, God accepted. The one you rejected, God vindicated his death by raising him back up from the dead. So what in the world does that have to do with this man being healed? It shows this, and I think we're all in danger of this, of believing the opposite of this. It shows that Jesus is alive and active. He's looking at this crowd saying, you thought he was gone. You thought he was done. I mean, you still think he's in the grave somewhere. Even though it's been proven 500 people have saw him flesh and blood after he was dead. It's been proven he's not in the tomb. The tomb's empty. But you thought you could kill him. You thought you could rob him of his power. But you killed him. God resurrected him. And now he's not just gone and he'll come back later. He's gone, but he's actually ruling and reigning. And this miracle is proof that Jesus is ruling and reigning with all authority, pouring out his power on us now. So this miracle was proof that Jesus is alive and well. This miracle and the resurrection of Jesus is proof that, uh, and this is where I think we're in danger of, Jesus is not a sleeping Savior. Like, I, I think practically we would say, Jesus is alive, right? We said it on Easter. Jesus is alive. He's alive indeed, right? But practically, functionally, might as well be asleep. He might as well be in heaven in a comfortable bed, uh, king-sized, tempur bed, uh, fast asleep right? Because what practical difference does it make in our life that Jesus is alive if he's up there in heaven? And and is he really intervening in my life? Is he really doing anything in my life? No, he's alive. And one day I'll feel the effects of that when he comes back and he makes everything new. But right now he's alive. So I get salvation. So later he's going to come and make everything right. But what Peter is saying is it makes all the difference that Jesus is alive because he's not sleeping. If you have a functional view that Jesus is a sleepy savior, then my estimation is that you might be, I might be a sleepy Christian, and I might need waking up, that the power of God is actively being poured out because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. So so why? Why is there power in that? I love saying it like this. It's because the one thing we humans have never figured a way around is death, and Jesus walked right through it out the other side, looks back on it and says, that was it. Jesus defeated the one thing we've never figured out, death. He paid the one price we can never afford, the punishment for sin. And that gives him authority over everything. That resurrection power changes everything about us. As you keep going, you see Peter, he actually pivots from, okay, so there's this resurrection. Jesus has all authority and all power. He's alive. He's active. Then he pivots to the Jews, and he actually offers them forgiveness. He says, look, you're the one that killed him. You denied him, but you can receive forgiveness if you'll just put your faith in Jesus and repent of your sin. That's what he tells them. And he goes through and he actually uses the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call our Old Testament. He uses that Hebrew Bible and he's telling them, look, everything's been pointing to Jesus anyway. That's what we've been trying to say with the story of God since last August. We've been trying to say everything was pointing to Jesus. And he actually preaches some of the sermon for us right here. He goes back to Genesis where God made promises to Abraham and said, through you I'm going to bless the whole world. How does that happen? Jesus. He accomplished salvation so all nations could come to know him. He goes to Moses and said, Moses said this, didn't he? A prophet's gonna come after me and you better listen to him because if you don't, you're gonna receive the wrath of God. Who's the prophet after Moses who speaks the perfect wisdom of God? Jesus. He talks about all the prophets that are talking about this appointed time. This, uh, he says, rep, verse 19, follow along with me. This is Peter talking to the Jewish people who gathered around amazed at this miracle. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Follow with me in this really weird language in verse 21 that took me forever to try to wrap my mind around. So he's talking about Jesus, verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Lots of clauses in there. What he's saying is, heaven received Jesus. Jesus was resurrected, and then he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he will come back and bring restoration to all things. We know restoration of all things because that's what the prophets spoke about long ago. Okay, so that's kind of the thought of Peter right there, what he's doing. What he's saying is that the story of God's not over. Not only is Jesus not dead, he's resurrected and not only is he resurrected he's alive and active pouring out his power not only is he alive and active pouring out his power that's not his final place he's going to come back and make everything perfect again that's where the story of God's going and he lets you in on how to get to be a part of it faith and repentance two different views of the same act turning from your sin and turning to God laying hold of him believing his promises for you so do you understand what what Peter's doing right here He says, you're wondering what power or piety made this happen? It's not mine. It's the name of Jesus. He's the one this whole story of God's been about anyways. And he's the one who's going to bring the story of God to completion. And he's the one that's alive right now, pouring out his power on us. And so the application for our church is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church and He says, I I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come to you with these eloquent words. I came to you and I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul says this, that's all I knew because I didn't want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men. There is a way we could lead this church that would actually make you trust us more than it made you trust Jesus. There are churches in our community. There are churches in our country. There are churches all over the world that are designed and built and come up with to make you put trust in men. That say, hey, trust our wisdom. Trust our strategy. And can I tell you this? It's a temptation for us pastors and Matthew in the back and Jay as a worship. It's a temptation for us to try to strategize our way into a bigger, better church. That's a real temptation for us. But the problem with that is that that doesn't last. If you put your faith in what we can achieve, if you put your faith in yourself, if you put your faith in any pastor, any church leader, or any church program more than you put your faith in Jesus, we have failed you at Shalford. Because programs come and go, ministries come and go, buildings come and go, pastors come and go, but Jesus Christ does not come and go. So the power of our church has to be one thing and one thing only, the power of Jesus Christ to save you, change you, turn your life around and give you an entirely new purpose. And shame on us if we build our church to say anything else. That's got to be the power of our church that we say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. We don't want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. So that's power. The second word... I want to talk about today is boldness, boldness. What what, what happens after they lay this gospel out before the people, what happens? Well, they're followers of Jesus and Jesus warned them of this, right? Jesus said, a a student's not above his teacher. servant's not above his master. If they persecute me, they're gonna persecute you. So what happens? Acts chapter four, we're really early in the story and the Jewish leaders are already extremely upset because it says uh, the number of men came to about 5,000 who responded to the gospel. Two back-to-back great worship services. One, 2,000 people get saved, and the other one, 5,000 people. This is unbelievable, right? But the Jewish leaders did not like it, so they actually put them in custody. It was towards the end of the day, so they take them into some sort of custody, and they said, we're going we're gonna to basically hold trial tomorrow, and we've got to hear what's going on. <clears throat> so they pull them in, and look what they ask. They use this awesome word, power and name. It says when they had, this is Acts chapter four, verse seven. When they had set them, Peter and John, when they set them in their midst of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders, they inquired this question. By what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, I just imagine him getting a grin. Thank you for asking, right? Thank you. You teed it up perfectly. Now, Now let me see where I can go with this one. So it says, Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus' promise? The Spirit's going to come after me. You're going to get drugged before kings, before rulers, and the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say in those moments. Remember Jesus saying that in the Gospels? Here it is. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. I love Peter's snarkiness. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, Right, so he's going, are you complaining? Are you complaining that this man can walk, right? He says, if we're, being concer- if we're being examined today concerning this healing, by what means this man has been healed? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, there's that comparison again. You denied him, God accepted him. By him, by the name of Jesus, this man is standing before you well. <clears throat> this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He reiterates that gospel message before them. <clears throat> now verse 13, here's our word. Acts 4.13. When, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. What a compliment. they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with jesus we could and i have preached an entire message on acts 413 there's a lot of hope in being an uneducated common person that people look at you and they realize one thing you've been with jesus there's a whole lot more life of power that comes from that that comes from some of the things we pursue but they recognize their boldness. So they basically huddle up. They say in verse 16, what in the world are we going to do with these guys? What do we do? Because we can't deny that the healing happened. Everybody saw it. And this man's standing right here and he's healed. So what are we going to do? And then they said this, they get this idea. Let's keep this message from spreading. We'll threaten them. We'll tell them "You, you can't keep speaking in this name. So verse 18, they get them back together and they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Listen to Peter's reply. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, I've got to imagine when he says that, listen to the theme. He said in chapter 3, you rejected Jesus, God accepted him. He says in chapter 4, you rejected Jesus, God accepted them. And then he says right here, if it's right to listen to you instead of God, you've got to be the judge of that. And he's basically saying, you're 0 for 2. Y- you've done nothing but get this thing wrong and compared to God. So, so you got to judge. If you think we should listen to you over God, you judge. But here's what Peter says in-, in verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. <clears throat> so, They embraced opposition just like Jesus did. They embraced opposition just like Jesus did. And how did they face opposition with boldness? So I want to ask this question this morning. I asked Matthew earlier, "What's boldness? How do you boil this down to one, a one sentence definition? What's boldness?" And here's the question I came up with for for what is boldness? Boldness asks this question: Is the risk worth the reward? Is the risk worth the reward? That's the question of boldness. However, bold you are will be determined by your answer to that question. Is the risk worth the reward? Jim Elliott was uh, a missionary. And in the mid 20th centuries, he went to Wheaton College, graduated, and and he got training. He went down to South America, Ecuador. He was a minister, he was, was trying to minister to the Aka Indians. He's got this really famous quote. Where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let that sit for a second. And follow what he's saying. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jim Elliott lived that quote by giving up his life. And he and three other missionaries were murdered by this tribe they were trying to bring the gospel to. And you say, what did Jim Elliot lose that day? He may answer, not a thing. Because what did Jim Elliot gain that day? (laughs) A face-to-face visit with his Savior, with the God of all creation. So, for Jim Elliot... Was the risk worth the reward? Well, what was the reward? Jesus. I, I think Philippians 1, 21. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Jim Elliot lived that verse. He's no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. So boldness. How did the disciples have boldness? And here's how. They made up in their minds that the reward of Jesus was worth any risk they could ever face in sharing his message. The reward of Jesus himself was so sweet to them that they said, what are we, what's the risk? If we stand up to these Jewish leaders, what are they gonna do to us? Kill us and we get to go be with Jesus? That's no risk at all. I'll gladly accept that fate. And so that's the, how does that question come home to us? Because we don't have leaders threatening our lives. We don't have... Aka Indian tribes with spears pointed at us. So, how do we wrestle with this question of is the risk worth the reward? Well, what are you willing to risk to be faithful to Jesus? And I would actually say it's extremely difficult in our context to be faithful to Jesus in all of life because we're so padded by comfort, We're, we're so comforted by first world ease that there's really not a whole lot that we're risking to follow Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we fold up our, our church Christianity card and we put it in our back pocket and we're willing to take it out when we need to. But, but at what point is Jesus the ruling factor of our life? And we don't take another job, we don't move to another city, uh, we don't buy another car, we don't move houses unless we're going, Jesus, is this what you want me to do? Are you willing to, worth, to, to risk educational achievements? I mean, I love the generational diversity of our church because we have people finishing college, starting families, getting jobs, and then we have people on the other end who are retiring or retired. And I think this question applies to both of us because on the younger end of the spectrum, are we willing to risk the rest of our lives in the fact that we may not have this always upward trajectory of more money, higher income, higher leadership positions in our jobs if we're following Jesus? And what I don't mean by that is you so speak out for Jesus that you get fired everywhere. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, you're willing to maybe not pursue a promotion on the altar of your family. I mean, are we willing to lay that down? Are we willing to lay down the fact that, yeah, I could make more money, but it would mean drastically fewer hours with my kids? Are we willing to risk that? Because the world's screaming, no, never risk that. Always take the promotion. Always take the more money. The other side that some of us are tempted with on this starting the family, starting our careers, finishing our education is, are you willing to risk what you'll look like if you don't idolize your kids? And what I mean by that is, you don't always give them everything they want. You don't let them play every season of sports. You don't, you don't sacrifice, well, we're going to miss... X amount of church for this activity and and really instill in you that what you're wanting is more important than us gathering with the people of God. John Piper had a quote this week where he said, the gulf between Christians who are willing to die to worship with believers and the Christians who ask whether or not soccer practice is more important than gathering with believers, it is a wide gulf. What are you willing to risk? Are you willing to risk social status? Are you willing to risk income? Are you willing to risk safe neighborhoods? Are you willing to risk looking like a fool? What are you willing to risk? Because the reward of Jesus is so sweet. My prayer for our church, for me personally, is that we so treasure Jesus that there is no risk too big for us to take. That's my prayer for our church. So are you following with me? We have power here in Acts three and four. We have boldness here in Acts three and four. And this all comes to a head at the end of chapter four. When they go back, they tell their friends what happened, and they all have this one congruous response. Let's pray. And they begin this beautiful prayer from which we could learn so much about how to pray. They address God as sovereign God. They pray in light of Psalm chapter 2. That's the quote there in verse 25 and 26 that in Psalm 2 it was looking ahead to the fact that uh, whoever God's anointed king is going to have rulers of the world in opposition to him at all times. And so they go back and read Psalm 2 and they go, that's where the opposition's coming from. The opposition is against God's anointed. We're with God's anointed so we experience opposition. But get down and look at what they pray for in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They didn't pray for a lighter load. They prayed for increased boldness. Now, based on how we just define boldness, what does it mean to pray for more boldness? If boldness is asking this question, is the risk worth the reward, then praying for more boldness is, give me a better taste for the reward. If we as a church pray, God, give us more boldness, what we're really trying to pray is, give us greater faith to enjoy the reward of Jesus. We're praying that we would have clearer eyes to see God in his word. We're praying that we would have more open hearts to receive his word to us. We're praying that our ears would be open to any sort of correction in our life to get us back on a trajectory towards Jesus. When we say increase our boldness, we're saying increase our delight in the reward of the gospel so that we're willing to risk more for it. That's what they were praying at the end of Acts 4. Increase our boldness increase our love for you so that you are our only reward of any value. But it's important to note that this all comes in a place of prayer, not in a community meeting where they decide this. There's a pastor in Las Vegas named Vance Pittman and he has this saying and it's tied so much to the story of their church and how God planted their church and grew their church. But he says, it's not that we pray and then we work. Prayer is the work then God works. It's not that we pray and then we work. It's not like we get so, we go, oh, I and Al gets on me for saying this, let me pray real quick. No, 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 let's not pray real quick. Let's pray. That's the work. Prayer is the work, then God works. Do you see what they prayed here? They said, give us boldness, and then look at what they said in verse 30. This is getting to the point in their prayer where they begin to actually ask for something. They said, give us boldness, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They acknowledge in the prayer that all the work is God's, which means all of our work is prayer to God. Jesus is ruling and reigning in all power. He's alive, he's he's not dead, he's resurrected. He's not just sleeping, he's up there pouring out his power on us so that his mission continues until the story's over. We can have all boldness because we so delight in the reward of Jesus that any risk is worth taking. So our work every single day as believers and as a church family is prayer. Because we cannot take one step forward without being completely and totally dependent on God. So to bring this message to a close in Acts 3 and 4. I just want to bring those three words back, power, boldness, and prayer. And put them in the form of some questions. Are you... Man, we make this personal. Are you walking in the resurrection power of Jesus? Does Jesus have a real influence on your day-to-day life and decisions? Does Jesus influence the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money? Does Jesus influence your relationships? Do you live as somebody who thinks you're sufficient enough, you're strong enough, you're capable enough, or do you find yourself constantly coming to Jesus saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I need you to do this. I need you to open the store. I need you to give me the words to say. I need your heart for this person. I mean, that's as practical as parenting, Right? If there's anything you feel insufficient to do, it's probably raise kids once you start doing it. And you realize, this is way harder than I thought. Jesus, I cannot love this kid one more time. I cannot be gracious one more time. I need you to do it. And then to flip that around, and when you pull one of your kids in, and you say, I need you to listen. Will you listen? And they say yes, and, and it runs through your head, and so you say it to him, and you go, no, you won't and I know you won't, but here's what you need to know. I'm gonna love you anyways, and I'm gonna forgive you when you don't listen again. But you're not gonna do it. Does the resurrection power of Jesus have a real tangible effect on the day-to-day way that you live? Does the resurrection power of Jesus have a real tangible effect on the way that we order our church life together? Or are we no better than a HOA country club Come hang out. Let's come have some surface level conversations and move right along. Or are we seeing lives changed? You want to know what it looks like to walk in the resurrection power of Jesus? Life change. Do you realize what happened to the lame man? I don't know if you caught the word, but it says, Peter reached down with his right hand and raised him up. And then the two other times Peter's talking about Jesus, he said, God raised him up. In some ways, this lame man experienced a resurrection. And in the same way, when the gospel comes to us, when the power of Christ was poured out on us, we experience the resurrection of Jesus because we have new life. Is that resurrection power marking the way we live individually and together? Are we bold? Because the reward is so sweet to us. Do we treasure Jesus? And you may say, how? What in the world does that mean to treasure Jesus? 2 Corinthians 3 says that we are transformed as we behold the glory of God. So, if you're wondering how to treasure Jesus, I'll give you two words. Look and live. Look to him and find life. Look at him. Look at him in his word Look at them in the truths of the gospel. Write them down and constantly look at Jesus. And here's the challenge. The things that we can see, they're transient. They're going to go away. They're earthly. The things that are unseen are eternal. So we're trying to look at something that we really can't see. So we've got to pray, God, open the eyes of my heart so that I can see you as you really are. Because when we see him as he really is, there's one response. And we see it at the end of the Bible. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So, do you treasure Jesus? Is he your reward? Are you willing to risk anything and everything in your life to make him known? Last, are we a people of prayer? Do we believe that prayer is the work and then God works? And I've got to confess, I'm not. I'm not near enough a person of prayer. But my hope is that we will grow in that, that we will take more intentional time, just like we did to read so much scripture earlier to pray together in this gathering. To pray together in our members' meetings. Next Sunday night, we have a members' meeting. We've done terrible at talking about church membership, but we really hope all of you become members, and we're gonna start meeting together pretty regularly as members, nine or 10 times a year, and not making it a a members' business meeting, okay? We don't just have a whole bunch of things to vote on. We're gonna get together and encourage one another. We're gonna pray together. We're gonna talk about scripture together, and we're gonna pursue God's vision for our church together. But we're gonna pray, because that's the work that God's given us to do. So Jay's gonna come up and we're gonna sing and I want you to think about these three words, power, boldness, and prayer. And I want us just to have an attitude of prayer. There's nothing holy about closing your eyes, it just kind of helps you focus a little more. So it helps us if we close our eyes together and enter an attitude of prayer right now and let God deal with you in your heart. Jesus really is pouring out his power to deal with you right now. And he wants to change your life. He wants to bring you back to himself. He wants to pour out his power on you so you can live with boldness, so you can be a people of prayer. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your word. Now, would you send your spirit right here, right now, to Shalford and change our hearts? Pray that we'd be a people of boldness. Increase our boldness, God. And God, would you do the work in our church? Would you save people? Would you call people to ministry? Would you call people to be missionaries? Would you, Luke 10, 2, raise up leaders, God, to lead these kids' classes in the back? Would you raise up leaders to lead our student ministry that's about to start growing, God? Would you raise up leaders to plant churches out of our, our church, God? Would you raise up missionaries who aren't going to move overseas but are going to stay right here off Shalford Road and invite tons of people to this church and share the gospel with everyone that they see? Would you do it, God? Because you've got to do it. We're not bold enough. We're not strong enough. We're not wise enough. But you are the God of our church, and we need you to build this church. You love it far more than any of us ever could. So we love you. We look to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Stand up and sing.